I always appreciate Jeff's selection of songs as we come to worship each Sunday, but boy, today's were just remarkable as they focused our attention so clearly on the cross of Christ and, and so boldly upon that, and I appreciate it. And, and that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, is ranked up there among my top five. I didn't say it was my favorite, just among my top five. And uh, it's, a, it's a great hymn by the great reformer Martin Luther. And uh, I, I love to say, I can't sing that too much. And I appreciate that very much. We sang about the power of the cross. And I was going to ask, Jeff, I, I don't mean to question your choice of songs, but could we add that tonight with Christ alone? Because tonight we're going to be looking at the part of the creed that talks about, I believe in Jesus Christ, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And uh, it just kind of goes with what I want to say tonight. So let's just do it again tonight. We, gotta, we can throw in an extra song tonight. We've got room. So uh, we'll do that tonight as we come to, to look at that section of the creed. And I hope you'll be here for that this evening. If you look in your order of worship, and if you've been here every week, you notice that we come now to Hebrews chapter 9, 15 through 28. And the, uh, the writer here, the, the, the preacher, the one who's instructing these Hebrew Christians, is coming again to talk about the covenant and the importance of the ratification of the covenant from both sides in, in the old covenant and the new covenant, the way it's set up. And, and it's an important passage of scripture for us to clearly understand. And we're going to look at that in depth next Sunday. I want you to be aware of that. Uh, today I want to do something just a little different. I don't typically do this. This is very out of character. But someone asked me this, a question this past week that, that kind of started you know, eating away at my thinking in a, in a positive way, in a good way. And that was, they said, Bill, why is the writer of Hebrews over and over and over again talking about the covenant? Why is he over and over again talking about the blood of Christ that is sacrificed that the new covenant might be established? Why is there this repetitive nature, if you will, by this writer to those particular issues and the sacrifice that Christ gave? And I started thinking about that. And I thought, you know, there's, there's a real good reason why he does that. And the reason is, is because the Hebrew re readers that he was writing to we're just like you and me. If we're not very careful, we will forget the glory of the sacrifice. We will forget the enormity of the, uh, of the covenant that God has made with his people through the blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. If we're not real careful, we will allow things to eclipse our vision of God. We will allow things to do just like a, a solar eclipse does where the moon comes between the sun and the earth and it looks like the sun goes out. It looks like the sun loses all its glory. It looks like the sun loses all of its power. But it doesn't lose any of that. We just fail to see it for a period of time while the moon is blocking our sight. In our everyday lives, we tend to let things eclipse the power and the glory and the magnitude of the covenant and the sacrifice and the blood of Christ. We let things in everyday life shut off our vision just a bit so that we don't see what we ought to see. We don't keep focused on what we ought to keep focused on. 
It's really, if you will, one of the, the greatest challenges to the Christian life, and it can only be categorized and can only be called what it is, and that is idolatry. We can be just as guilty of idolatry and of, of idols as, as those people whom Brother Scott read about in Isaiah where it talks about they, they take a piece of wood and they take it to a craftsman and say, carve me a God that I can bow down to it, a God that has no power, a God that ha cannot hear, cannot speak, cannot walk, cannot do anything, but they bow down and expect that God to do something for them. We can be just as guilty as they about worshiping idols. Os Guinness and, and John Sale in their little book, No God But God, made this observation. He said, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible and one of the most powerful spiritual and intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal. Yet for Christians today, it is one of the least meaningful notions and is surrounded with ironies. Perhaps this is why many evangelicals, that's us, are ignorant of the idols in their lives. Contemporary evangelicals are little better at recognizing and resisting idols than are modern secular people. There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and the destruction of idols. <clears throat> now, that's a, that's a strong statement. He's saying that we who are evangelicals, contemporary, modern evangelicals, have just about as much trouble recognizing idols as, as our secular friends have in recognizing them. They just don't even acknowledge them. They don't even understand what we're talking about. Now, now when Guinness and Sales start talking about that, and, and what I'm talking about when I'm talking about idolatry is not bowing to some kind of little statue that's been made out of wood or metal or, or jewels. I'm not talking about having a multitude of gods that we sit around our house and on Monday we worship this god, we bow down before this idol, and on, on Tuesday we bow down before this idol, or, or through some ceremony or festival or special time of the year we go to this idol. That's not what I'm talking about. But the idols I'm talking about are just as real and just as destructive as those idols could be in your life. For instance... The real problem with most Christians today, and I'll, I'll use a very technical term here. I hope you'll, you'll unpack it yourself and think about it a little bit. But, but the real problem is we let stuff, that's the technical term, we, we let stuff get in the position of greatest importance in our life. Now, now, you can take that word stuff and you can come up with all sorts of imagined things of what I'm talking about here. But anything that you allow to rise to a place of, of ultimate importance, absolute importance, that blocks your vision of God, that blocks your view and your understanding of the glory and the power and the majesty and the sovereignty of God, is an idol. John Calvin, the, the, the reformer, back several hundred years ago, he was born 500 years ago, uh, made this statement in his institutes that I think rings very true. He said, The human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us from his mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. Now let that soak in for a minute. The human heart is a factory of idols. Our affections, our, our, our emotions manufacture idols all the time. And every one of us from, from his mother's womb is an expert. 
You know, most of us don't consider ourselves experts in a lot of things, but Calvin says all of us are experts in inventing and coming up with idols. I found interesting one of the things that, that Guinness and Sale said was that idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. And I, I went back and thought about that a little bit and looked through some things, and you know, I found out that they're absolutely right. If you, if you look at the totality of the Scripture, for instance, when Paul sums up the fall of man, of humanity, into sin, he discusses it in terms of idolatry. He describes it in terms of idolatry. In Romans chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, uh, really starting with verse uh, 22, Paul says, Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in their lust, in the lust of their hearts, to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. <clears throat> when Paul talks about the fall into sin, he talks about it in terms of idolatry, taking the image of God, the, the, the insurpassable glory of God, and reducing it somehow to something else. When the, if you look at the law, the Old Testament law, back when Moses came down from, from Mount Sinai with the ten tablets to, to be the law of God's people, the law of the Israelites, the law begins with a prohibition against idolatry. This is what it says. It says in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The law, I mean, I mean the, the ten big ones, that God says, this is what characterizes my character. This is what demonstrates morality, if you will, true godly morality flowing out of the character of God. He, he doesn't start with don't steal or don't commit adultery or, or don't lie. He doesn't start with those. But he starts with talking about idolatry and him being the true and the living God and our focus and our worship and our attention, not only on Sunday morning when we gather here corporately to worship, but every single day of the week, whether we're on the job or in school or in our homes or in our neighborhoods, wherever we are, our focus is to be on him, not on stuff, not on idols that would distract our attention away from him. The law starts that way. If you go to the Psalms, you'll find the Psalms spend much time praying against idols. I don't have time to read all of them, but let me just give you an example. Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18. Uh, the psalmist says there, the idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. And listen to this. But those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them will be like them. 
the point of the psalmist there in praying against those false gods, be in this case literal idols that you see sitting on a shelf somewhere, but the point is that we become like what we worship. We, we become what we worship. I mean, that's a principle throughout all of Scripture. And if we have idols in our lives, and I'm not talking again about bowing down to statues at this point, but any stuff that take the place in our life, and we'll talk about some of the specific ones in a moment, if we have idols in our lives that eclipse our worship of God, that cut off our view and our vision and our understanding of the glory of God, then that's what we will become like. That's at least a major part of the reason the evangelical church in America today looks more like the world than it, does like, than it looks like Christ. That's at least part of the reason, and I think a major part of the reason, why we go about and, and hear people say, well, I don't see any difference between people who go to church and, and people who are out in the world. And a matter of fact, sometimes the people in the world are nicer to me than people who profess to be Christians are. The problem is the problem of idolatry. And we're becoming like that which we focus upon. We're becoming like that which we look upon and gaze upon and, yes, worship. The prophets as was read earlier by, by Scott, the prophets preach against the idols. So you've got the, the writings of Paul, you've got the Psalms, you've got the law, and now you've got the prophets preaching against the idols continuously. Isaiah, uh, later on from the passage that, that Scott read a while ago, said this. He said in chapter 44, Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions we put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. He, so he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over, over this he eats the meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Now, now I want you to just think on this a minute. I want you to just hear what Isaiah is saying there. Uh, he says, with, with one thing he feeds himself, he prepares his food, and with the other half of it, he, 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 he forms himself a god. D does that not mean at least to some extent that what, what is happening here is something that is good and something that is necessary and something that is useful can be taken and misused and misapplied and utilized 
as an idol. As a matter of fact, the New Testament is very clear a warning us against idolatry, against idols in our lives. We've already looked at Romans chapter 1 where Paul described the fall in terms of idols, in terms of idolatry. He goes on there and extends that warning that, that if you follow false things, if you let things take over your life, then, then you will become like them. And God will give people over to their own lust and to their own depravity if that's what they choose to do. In Galatians, he warned further about idols in our lives. He said, in Galatians 4, he said, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which were by nature no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? The warning there to those Galatians is not unlike the warning to the Hebrews. They were tempted to go back to their old way of living, their old way of life, their old way of trying to earn favor with God, in their case through the law, in our case through perhaps dead works. But the idea here that Paul makes is these are weak things, these are worthless things, these are elemental things because God is the only God. And if we, if we let things or stuff captivate our thinking and captivate our life, then we become slaves to that and it begins to rule our life. Or I like the simplicity with which John the Apostle warned in 1 John 5.21, the end of that little book that he wrote on what it means to be a believer, how you can know that you have eternal life. He says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. What a, what a grave warning. What an important warning for you and me to, to understand, even in the 21st century, when we live in a, a culture that you know, doesn't really set up a lot of idols as far as statues go, but yet can be just as idolatrous as any former primitive culture ever was. I want you to see something. I, I want you to ask the question, how do, I, how, do, how do I go about identifying my own idols? How do I go about identifying my own idols? You've got to begin that point, begin that question by understanding that idols are not necessarily bad things. And as a matter of fact, they can be good things that we have elevated. You know, they don't have to be bad. They don't have to be sin. Now, sin will destroy your life, but so will idolatry, even if it's a, quote, good thing that you make an idol. You say, how can a good thing become an idol? Let me give you three examples. One is the whole concept of work. Understand that work is a command of God. From the very garden, he said, you will work. You will till the ground. You will do work by the sweat of your brow in order to earn your sustenance so that you'll be able to live and eat and exist on this earth. The apostle Paul said at one point, he said, listen, if a man doesn't work, then he's not to eat. In other words, laziness is not an acceptable thing for a believer. But work, while it's good, while it's necessary, while it's an important thing, work can become an idol if it is pursued so exclusively that one's family is ignored. 
Paul also said in that same context of, you know, if a man doesn't eat, he uh, doesn't work, he's not to eat. He also said that if a man does not care for his own family, then he's worse than an infidel, worse than an unbeliever. So the truth is, if work becomes so elevated that it captivates your time, that it takes up 80, 90, 100 hours a week, and you leave before your family gets up in the morning, and you come in after your family goes to bed at night, and there's, you're just giving everything you have to that, it becomes an idol, and it will affect your relationship with Christ. It will eclipse the glory of God in your life there's other idols another one would be what I mentioned there if you work to neglect your family work becomes an idol your family can also become an idol now understand family is the first institution that God ever established it's before government it's before the church it's even before the law God established the family. And he said, you are to care for your family. If a man doesn't take care of his family, he's worse than an infidel, Paul said. I mean, there is, this, uh, there is this relationship that is important. But caring for your family, if that becomes all that you do, if you become so wrapped up in your family that it's just about my family, and I become so preoccupied with my family that no one outside of one's family is cared for or ministered to, and if that captivates all your time, then family becomes an idol because you neglect a broader ministry that God intends for you to have. And family can eclipse your view of the glory and the majesty of God. What about something as simple as, as a desire to be liked? I mean, a, a desire to be liked is a totally and perfectly legitimate hope. I want you to like me. I mean, I really do. I, I really hope you like me. That's, that's, a, that's a legitimate thing. I, I don't intentionally do things that would make you dislike me, or at least I try not to. But a desire to be well-liked can become an idol if the attachment to it means no one, that, that you never risk disapproval. For a pastor, that becomes an idol when he refuses to deal with issues and refuses to deal with things like idolatry in people's lives because that might make them uncomfortable. That might make them not like him. In your life, you may risk not calling a, a co-worker holding them accountable for a, a wrong they're doing or, or, or something along that line, or even a family member, because you just want to be liked. I mean, you can go on and on establishing things that can become idols in your life if they're elevated to a place of unnatural importance over obedience to Christ, serving Christ, worshiping Christ above everything else. Indeed, I think there are about four things that I would say are kind of rude idols that, that we struggle with within, our, within the church, that people who are born-again Christians, people who really know the Lord, but yet can struggle with these sort of rude idols. And there are hundreds of others I won't even have time to go into, but I want you to think about these for just a minute. One is, is what I would call a, a power idolatry. Power idolatry is, is sort of, characterized like this. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. You see that in the workplace manifest itself. You see that in families manifest themselves itself. 
that I must be in control, I must be in power, and if I'm not in power, then I don't have any worth. I don't, I don't feel good about myself. My life doesn't have any meaning. If I have to be co-equal with somebody or even subordinated to somebody, then, then I, am, I am just not happy at all. And you pursue power, you pursue control. That becomes an idol. Another one is approval idolatry. It kind of goes along with the idea of being liked. Approval idolatry. Approval idolatry is life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am loved and respected by and fill in the blank. It might be a group of people. It might be an individual. Sometimes young people get caught up in that because I can only have a good feeling about life. I can only be happy if this boy or this girl likes me that I'm pursuing. And boy, if they, don't, if they don't pursue back or if they don't reciprocate in that pursuit, then I just don't feel I have anything. Adults can do that too. When they just feel like they have to have the approval of a boss to such a, a point that they just go overboard and, and, and seek that without any, any thought to what is right and what is wrong. It's approval idolatry. There's, there, there's a comfort idolatry. And, and this, is a, this is a big one in America. You know, I, I, my life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have this kind of a pleasure experience or, or a particular quality of life or, or level of life. If I don't reach the pinnacle of my success so that I can just live in absolute comfort and that's all that matters and I will do everything I can to reach that level, that becomes an idol. It eclipses God. It hides his glory in your life. There's, a, there's one other that I, I want to mention that, that kind of flows out of all this, but it comes a root, and that is what I call an image idol, image idolatry. Image idolatry says that life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have a particular kind of look or body image, you know, a physique. You can rest assured I don't have that idol. That's obvious. But I remember when, I, especially I remember living in Florida when I when I pastored there in Orlando and in, in, in the suburbs and, and I remember some days having to go back home to pick up something or, or that I'd forgotten or, or go back and turn something off or something before worship service and I'd be driving down the streets in, in Longwood, Florida and in, in Sweetwater and in, in that area and, and I would be in a car on my way to church or on my way back to the house to get something and I would see literally hundreds of people running and jogging and cycling and, and this, was their, this was their life. I saw those same people on Monday and on Tuesday and, and every day. They were just so intent. I must have this physique. I must have this certain image. I must have this certain look. That was all that was important. What, was, what, what is physical will pass away. My favorite verse, verse of scripture. This is my favorite. When Paul said, bodily exercise profits little. I got a lot of amens on that one. But, <laughs> but what really matters is holiness. What really matters is godliness. 
What really, what really matters is, is what is your relationship with Christ? How in your life are you destroying the idols? How are you tearing down the idols? How are you letting the grace of God and, and the power of Christ crush those in your own life so that that's not what's driving your life, but what's driving your life is the glory of Christ. What's driving your life is to know him better. What's driving your life, life is to be more like him, to be conformed to his image. To let the image in your life not be that of something. Or let the image that drives your life not be stuff. But the image that drives your life is the image of Christ. It's what Paul said in, in, in 2 Corinthians when he said, for, for now we gaze as in a mirror on the face of Christ. It, but a mirror darkly. It's, it's not real clear. But we are, as we gaze upon Christ, being changed from glory to glory. That is, we are being changed in a progressive manner toward the glory of Christ when we gaze upon his face, when we gaze upon his glory. And where do we find that glory? We find that glory in the Word. We don't find it in a vision. We don't find it in a picture. We don't find it in some kind of a, a graven image. We find the face of Christ, the glory of Christ, in the Word of God. And when we pursue that Word, when that becomes the focal point of our life, when we want to know His Word and know Him through His Word, it begins to destroy. It begins to make insignificant. It begins to remove the idols from our lives. It's amazing. It's amazing what we who know, we who know the true and living God, we who know His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we who know the truth revealed in his word because he's, Jesus himself said, you know, sanctify them, change them, make them like me in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We know that. We have that. It's been given to us. It's amazing we let stuff push it aside. We let stuff get in the way. We let idols spring up. We would never admit unless the Holy Spirit convicts us of it that they're idols. Oh, we might see that idol in somebody else's life. And we might readily acknowledge that's somebody else's idol. But I think the reason in Hebrews that the writer over and over and over again says, look at the covenant, look at the sacrifice, look at the blood of Christ, look at the heavenly tabernacle. Let's set, as he said to the, to the Colossians, set your minds upon Christ and upon heavenly things. Let your mind think on the things that are godly and right and good. That's what matters in life. And that's the only way the idols will be destroyed. It's the only way. So the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to understand this. 
I want you to get it right. I want this to be a focus. I want you to think about the blood of Christ and the covenant of Christ when you're at work tomorrow. I want you to think about this when you're having to deal with somebody that's not really pleasurable to deal with. I want you to remember what has been given on your behalf that you might not let your own ego become your idol. I want you to think about the glory of Christ. I want you to dwell on that. Paul said to the Philippians, whatever is good, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, let your mind dwell on these things. Dwell, meditate, concentrate. And what he's talking about there is the word. Let your mind, let your affections, let your thoughts, let everything about you concentrate, meditate upon God's word. And then he gives a promise to that. And if you do that, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You not only know peace with God, you'll not only know what it means to, to no longer be an enemy of God and have reconciliation and have salvation, but you'll also know the peace of God. It'll guard you every day as you walk with him and walk in his word. Little children, as John says, little children, guard yourselves against idols. Guard yourselves. Put up protections. And the protection is the word of God. Let's pray.